Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. You know, it's always uh, somewhat funny to, to be able to hear our kids and their perspective about church, and especially the preacher's kids. I mean, most of them are here, well, just about every time the door is open, you know. Uh, I told them as they get older, you know, I, I want them to go to church. I told them this the other day. I said, I want you to go to church, and I'll be honest with you. I wish you'd go to a Baptist church. I mean, that's just who I am. Hope you go to a Baptist church. You don't have to go to both services one day. You know, the morning services, you can just choose one of them. Don't have to go with both of them at that time. But uh, you just need to go to one. But it's always funny to hear their perspective. So tonight we tell Ainsley we're heading to church. Of course, Ainsley is my three-year-old. And she said, oh, are we going to eat? I was like, yeah, I think, I think that somehow has has just uh, sunk into her psyche that every time we come to church now, we eat. Of course, we did eat. Some of us did today with the college students afterwards. And uh, I tell you what, it's been a great day to be in God's house. I'm from all the way around, all our services. It's been awesome to see God just leading individuals and, and working in people's lives. One of the things that you hear me say about Temple a lot, and, and I really mean this, is that we are blessed to have a multi-generational church. It's one of the greatest strengths we have is to be able to have our younger folks and to have our not as younger folks and uh, to be able to come together and worship in such ways. And uh, this has just been a great day to me to see that and to worship. So I hope that it's been a great day for you as well. Acts chapter 19, tonight as we look at this passage, as Paul begins his third missionary journey, you see him taking the gospel. And you see him come across some that, well, they might be loosely identified as Baptist kind of people, but you see how Paul interacts with them and helps them come to a fuller understanding of the gospel, and you see individuals who follow Christ and they have given their lives to him. So I want you to see this tonight as we look at this brief passage of Paul as he approaches this church there at Ephesus, this group of individuals that really become the church at Ephesus. Notice beginning in verse 1 it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And so they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul had had his time in Antioch. Remember, he had made these trips. He had made two missionary trips already, and he had come back to Antioch. For some time, he had been there at his home church. We talked about this last week, about how he certainly celebrated with them the reports and 
the mission that he had been upon. He had talked to them about the things that he had experienced, and perhaps he grew uh, or drew strength uh, from their encouragement and from the worship that they had. But you know Paul. He can't stay in one place very long. So he draws the strength, he worships with the church at Antioch, and then he's off once again. And the scripture here tells us that he comes over to a place called Ephesus. And as he comes in, he speaks to those who are gathered. And he, he begins to share with them about who Christ is. And he asks them specifically if they had received the Holy Spirit. And they say to him, Holy Spirit, us receiving the Holy Spirit, we've not even heard about the Holy Spirit. And he says, you haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. You haven't experienced the Holy Spirit. Then what kind of background do you have? And they said, well, we were baptized by John. So in some way, in some fashion, loosely speaking, we are good Baptists. We have been people immersed, put under the water in a, in a sign of repentance. And Paul says, hold on just a minute. That's wonderful. And John did baptize in that attitude of repentance. But we want you to know that it's not through just a turning by itself. It is about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's basically the story that you see unfold in Ephesus. So what I want to do tonight maybe is to give you three truths about the full gospel that God allows us to experience. Now, that word full gospel, that used to bother me a little bit. You know, I would drive around and I would see churches that said full gospel. And I would think to myself, well, what am I? I mean, am I half gospel? Those of us, you know, and it, and it had different connotations in my life when I would see it. So I want to use that word full gospel, but I want you to maybe understand it as the complete gospel because what Paul is doing here is helping them see the full, complete revelation of who Christ Jesus is and what he wants to do in their hearts and lives. They have a little bit of an understanding, but through Paul's effort and through his mission, they come to a greater understanding of who Christ is and what salvation truly is in their lives. So I want you to think about this tonight, these truths concerning the full gospel. One, the full gospel calls for both repentance and faith. The full gospel calls for both repentance and faith. Now, again, these disciples of John, they had been baptized. They had been baptized into the baptism of John. And Paul recognizes that that baptism speaks of repentance. It speaks of repentance. In other words... They were hearing the message of John the Baptist. They heard him say that they were to repent. The kingdom of God was at hand. Something was breaking forth. Something was new. And they were to come and to change their lives. That's what repentance is. Repent means to turn from one way and turn to another. The idea is turning away from your sin and turning to something else. Repentance is a part of salvation, no doubt. That was the message that Jesus himself delivered. That is the message that the apostles delivered. It was the message that Peter delivered on the day of Pentecost is that you have to repent of your sins. That is, a, that is an essential ingredient in salvation. You cannot have salvation absent of repentance. You simply cannot. 
You cannot know Christ. You cannot come to that point of eternal life without first saying, I am going to repent of my sins. So in other words, the followers of John, they understood this basic component of salvation. They understood the repentance. Perhaps some of them had joined that little community down around Qumran. Some of you know that down around that area, around the Dead Sea, they would, they would practice a very strict lifestyle. And if you ever travel over there, hopefully you will one day, if you've never traveled over there, by the way, you can go with me. Wouldn't that sweeten the pot? And Dale, he'll go too. If you want him to go with you, he'll be there too in April. But if you go, you'll see that they did practice this baptism. Some people think John the Baptist was somehow influenced by this community or part of that community down at Qumran. And you'll see even today where the old baptistries were, where people would go for this idea of turning from their sin and experiencing some cleansing in their lives. It was, a, it was a key component of the message of John. It was a key component of the message of Jesus. It was a key component of the message of Peter and all of the apostles. We have to repent. But this is what these disciples of John needed to understand. The full gospel calls for repentance, but it also calls for faith. Specific faith in Jesus Christ. I love the way this is stated for us here in verse 4. It says, Indeed, John had baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is, on Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul said, Yes, John said to be baptized in this state of repentance, but also know that John the Baptist talked about this man this one, this Christ, this Messiah that would come after him. And when he came, you were to believe, have faith on him. I love that little preposition. It's that little preposition in the Greek, the idea on him, upon him. In other words, you are going to trust on him. You're going to believe on him. See, God calls us to repent. In other words... We turn away from our sins. But when we turn away from something, we should turn to something, right? When I'm saved, when I was saved, I turned away from my sin. But get this, I turned to Jesus. It's not just good enough to say, hey, I feel bad about what I've done and I, and I know that the path that I'm on is not right and just simply say, hey, I'm not going to do that anymore. Salvation is much more than that. Salvation is just much more, it's much more than just saying, hey, I don't like the way my life is, so I think I'm going to try to start walking a different way. I know this is not a newsflash to anyone probably in here, but you can't just walk your own way and truly experience salvation. As a matter of fact, you can't just walk your own way and experience a change. Oh, it may happen for a little while, but I'm saying to you, according to what the Scripture teaches, none of us can overcome the sin in our life apart from the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us. We can't. We'll eventually come right back to it. We may walk a certain way for a little while, but somehow that old nature that I talked about this morning, that old nature will reign it is only through the power of Christ 
It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we have the strength to say, we have turned away and now we have turned to and we are following Him. And our faith and our trust is on Him. In other words, He is the foundation of our life at that point. Everything that we are, everything that we do should be based on Him, on who He is. So the full gospel says there's repentance and there is faith. The two have to go hand in hand. And that is what Paul speaks. That is what he shares with these disciples of John. Repentance, faith. Those of you in this place who have been saved, those two components, they played that key role in your life, did it? Did they not? You said to yourself, I experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I know I've gone in the wrong direction. I want something to change in my life. And you begin to turn. But you knew that turning to Christ was your only hope and your only option. You turned away from, you turned to. You gave up, you grabbed on the work of Christ. That is the only way for salvation. So the full gospel calls for both repentance and faith. The full gospel, listen, the full gospel recognizes the lordship of Christ. The full gospel recognizes the lordship of Christ. Notice verse 5. It says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it says, when they heard that they had to have faith in Jesus, that that was the complete message, that that was the full gospel, that it wasn't just about the repentance of John, but rather it was about the faith in Christ. When they heard this, it says they were baptized. I love the word immersed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, just as in the Old Testament, when you see that word name, well, I mean, it's simply, it did mean the name but it also spoke to the personhood, the personhood of the individual. So when you hear this idea, the name of the Lord Jesus, it means that these individuals were immersed into the very person of who Christ was, that they were immersed in Christ. They were immersed in Jesus. And obviously, from what we are told here by Dr. Luke, they believe in His Lordship, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Later on in verse 10, Paul will continue in Ephesus for two years teaching. And it says that all of those who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. What's so meaningful about that? The idea of the Lordship of Christ. The earliest confession of faith, the earliest confession of faith in the church was... Jesus is Lord. Earliest confession. Those early believers and disciples, when they stood before a congregation, when they stood before other believers, they had to confess, Jesus is Lord. He was the supreme commander. He was the boss. He was over all and for all. That's basically what they were confessing. Remember, at some point in the Roman Empire, even during the New Testament time, there were those who would cry out, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. You would hear it in different crowds as, as the Roman officials would go around. They would scream out, Caesar, Caesar, he is Lord. 
And now hear what the early believers would say. The early believers would say, Jesus is Lord. Now, they were not trying to bring down the Roman Empire. They were not trying to bring forth the military forces and somehow uh, engage in an insurrection. That's not what they were doing. But what they were saying was, is that there is only one true king. There's only one true Lord, and he is above every other one. He's not necessarily this earthly king. He is the heavenly king that is above all earthly kings. He is Lord. And that was the confession. And they believed that in that gospel, the idea that he was the Lord, that that would have an impact upon their lives every day. The Lordship of Christ. I think that might be a doctrine that has slipped away from us just a little bit. A proper understanding of the Lordship of Christ. When I was working on my dissertation, Dr. Bob Hamlin, who taught evangelism at New Orleans Seminary, Carol, you probably remember him years ago when he was there and, and uh, had pastored this great church in Tupelo, Mississippi, got to come back and preach a little bit on television when I was a young man. And I was getting ready for church on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. I could turn it on, and there was Dr. Bob Hamlin. So when they said something about doing a paper on him, I said, I'm right there. I can do that. It was one of the most boring things I've ever done in my life, but I got it finished. As Argel said to me one time, you can be famous or you can be finished, Reggie. I said, I want to be finished. I don't care anything about being famous. So I got it done. But Dr. Hamlin, one of the... I think his core doctrines that he would embrace and one that he wrote some articles and a book about is this very idea of the lordship of Christ and how we are missing that in our churches today. The idea that Jesus must be and he requires for us to recognize his lordship in everything that we are, in everything that we have. And that there's no disconnect between His saving us and His being our Lord. There's no disconnect whatsoever. I remember when First Zachary was going through a rewrite of its constitution and bylaws. Actually, I say rewrite. It was the original edition. Um, they had had a pastor there, Dr. Barnes, for 39 years, sometime before I got there. And basically... Dr. Barnes was the Constitution and bylaws for all of those years. You got what I'm saying? So when I came in, some things had happened, and they were trying to put together this Constitution and bylaws, and uh, I worked with the committee. I think we met once a week. One of the most exhilarating experiences of my life, <laughs> saying just. But um, we got it done. We brought it to the church and had a statements of doctrine and faith and practice and some of those things and put it out there to the church. And I had this one dear lady. I mean, one of the dearest ladies that you would ever, ever meet. I loved her to death. She, she, was, um, she had taught Bible drill for years. She was as faithful to the church. Look, at one point, she even bought me a couple of suits. She said I was about the only preacher that still wore suits, so she would just buy me one every now and then. I said, I'm so proud of you. I love you. I keep wearing suits as long as you keep buying them. You know what I'm talking about? She was a wonderful lady. So don't take this the wrong way, but she, she came to me after we had put out that Constitution, and, and it just simply said somewhere in there, in our 
constitution and bylaws, it said something to the effect of Jesus being our Lord and Savior. She came to me and she said, don't you think that's backwards? And I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, it says Jesus as your Lord and Savior. She said, I think that's backwards because you have to accept Him as your Savior first before you accept Him as your Lord. Well, I thought about that. I'm going to tell you, I couldn't give her an answer right then. I said, you know what, Let let me just process this. Let me kind of go back and think about it. I'm a thinker anyway, especially when it comes to those kinds of things. Let me not give you a a quick answer. Let me really think through this a little more before I answer you. And I went back and I studied and I looked again and, and I was challenged by that question. Because I will tell you, coming up in a Baptist church, that's probably my mentality as well. Savior first, then Lord. So I went back to her after my study. And I went back to her after I had prayed about it and worked through it. And I told her, I said, you know, I've been putting time into this and trying to understand exactly what it is and how the wording should be. And, and you know, I've come to the conclusion it really doesn't matter which order you put it in. Because you see, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you're accepting Him as your Lord. You have to accept Him for who He is, Right? It's no half Savior that you have. You don't accept half of Jesus. You accept exactly who He is. And let me tell you, who He is in our lives, He is both Savior and Lord when we come to Him. When we come to give our faith to Him and trust in Him, we're not saying simply, God, we want you to save me, and now I'm going to go out and do anything I want to do. That's not the proper way of salvation My friends, I'd even suggest to you that's not even salvation. When you come to accept Him, you accept Him as who He is and you accept Him for that divine quality. You you accept Him for the human quality. You understand that He is your Savior. Yes, He is, but He is also your Lord. There is no dichotomy. There's no division in that. He is both Savior and Lord at the same time. You say, well, you make a big deal out of this. Because of this, when Jesus is your Lord, that means that He is directing you and guiding you and every activity has to come under His Lordship. Every area of your life. For too many of us, we have separated certain areas and we've lived this cafeteria type of Christianity where we say, Jesus, we're going to take this from you. We'll take that. We'll leave that. You just keep that to yourself. This is the way we live. That is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is recognizing that Jesus is Lord. As some of my friends have said over and over, if Jesus is not Lord over all, He's not Lord at all. He has called us to submit our lives. Now, I understand some of you are sitting here saying, oh, but I remember there are other times when I have had to submit areas. Yes, I know that there are times in my life since my salvation, where I said, God, I need to submit this to you better than what I have. I need to surrender this area of my life. I need to give this. I understand that the more I grow in my knowledge of Christ, the more I see I fall short of the glory and how I need to, to give it. But when I came to salvation, 
I did not come to him and say, hey, I need some fire insurance, Jesus. I came to say, Jesus, I want to live for you. And I want to do what you call me to do. I want to follow you just as you've tried. Jesus, I want to be yours. Now, I was only about 12, but I knew at that point I wanted to be all in. And that's the way Christ wants us to come. Here are these disciples of John. They had experienced repentance, but they had not really experienced the lordship of Christ. Paul goes in there and he preaches the lordship of Christ, how Christ was over all and above all and how he called all to himself to submit and surrender. I say again, it plays itself out in our practical lives every day, does it not? His lordship, he's in control. Practical ways of daily life. If he's our boss, then he is the one that we're seeking He is the one we're hoping to please. He is the one that has the authority to give us commands. He has the authority to direct us in our own ways. That's the Christ that we serve. That's the Jesus and his lordship in our lives. I have no authority. Listen to me. I have no authority to do things on my own. I have no authority to try to make my own decisions because this body and this person has been bought with a price and now owned by the Lord above. The full gospel, the full gospel recognizes the lordship of Christ and it insists upon the lordship of Christ. And finally this, the full gospel embraces the reality of the Holy Spirit. The full gospel embraces the reality of the Holy Spirit. Remember the way Paul began this conversation. He said, have you experienced the Holy Spirit? They say to him, we don't even know what you're talking about. Never heard of this Holy Spirit. So after they come to faith, it says that they experience the Spirit of God. Now, verse 6 can be a challenging verse for us, a scripture. Look at what it says. It says, Now when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now I can hear some of uh, Christian brothers and sisters that are kind of on a different spectrum. I can hear them tonight saying, Woo, amen, preacher, preach it. We need to hear this in the Baptist churches just as we've heard it in the other churches. I can hear them talking about, See what we said You lay hands, the Holy Spirit, second blessing, tongues, all the kind of stuff that go with it. Right there, it's in the book of Acts. Dr. Luke reports it. May I remind you, and listen to me, may I remind you that when you look through the book of Acts and you see the Holy Spirit's coming in these different instances, they are not normative experiences for the believer. I've often said that they're not prescriptive, but they're descriptive. What do I mean by that? When Dr. Luke is writing these things, he is writing the story. He is writing the narrative. He is not telling us this is exactly the way it happens every time. He's not prescribing that this is the way it happens. He's actually describing the events. And I want you to note that if you look at the previous three comings of the Holy Spirit, 
upon the Jew and the Samaritan and the Gentile, you'll find still different ways in which the Spirit came and different processes. So in other words, if you're going to draw your doctrine from the book of Acts and from this exclusively, I think you're going to have a hard time coming up with an easy, smooth transition of the way the Holy Spirit comes because they're all different. They're just different. Which one are you going to pick? This one or others? Remember, this is a transition time in the life of the church, and it is a transition for here. John, These disciples of John, they had kind of understood a little bit, but they had not received the Spirit. And here there was this declaration of the Spirit's coming. I like to build my doctrines. Now, I'm not saying that Acts is not full of doctrine. It has doctrine in it. But I love to base my my doctrines more upon the letters, for example. Why? Because when they were writing the letters, they were addressing doctrinal issues. And they were addressing issues that were in, involved in belief and teaching. And in the... Well, this Paul, as he writes his letters, he reminds us that all of us are temples of the Holy Spirit of God, right? Isn't that what he says? I don't have to wait for a second blessing. It's instantaneous when the Spirit comes in. One of these days I'll do a, a sermon series on this. Man, I got so many sermon series. I got to do so many. But I never forget the way my professor at Blue Mountain College, Dr. Meeks, how he described what happened, how it was instantaneous, the work of the Spirit at the moment of salvation. And he used this word ribs. I like it because I like ribs. And uh, I've always remembered it. What does the Holy Spirit do? He regenerates, he indwells, he baptizes, and he seals the believer at the very moment of salvation. He births us into the family, regeneration, born of the Spirit. He indwells us. He comes set up shop, the temple of God. He baptizes us, the scripture says. In other words, we identify with him. He immerses us in the spirit and then he seals us. According to what Paul says to the Ephesians, he seals us. In other words, he puts that stamp upon us where, well, that stamp upon us that said we are his and we always will be his until the day of eternity when he comes again. Spirit of God coming in our lives. But let me say to you, even though we may not find the prescriptive way in which the Holy Spirit comes here, don't miss the reality and the power of the Holy Spirit in this passage. You know, I don't think today, and according again to what Paul will say in his letters, I don't think we transfer the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. I don't think that that's the way that uh, you have to display the manifestations of the Spirit. I don't think that. But I do believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is still just as real today. And I believe, even as John says in his first little letter, that it is evidence of the salvation that we've had in Christ is that the Spirit lives within us. The Spirit lives within us. Spirit is not a thing. It's not an it. The Spirit is a person that comes to live within us. That divine individual that Jesus spoke about. When Jesus said, hey, it's better for me to leave. It's advantageous for me to leave so that you might receive the Holy Spirit in your life. 
That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Shared it just the other day, I think a few Sundays ago. It's just one of the most amazing statements I've ever heard, and I've been wrestling with it here recently. That Jesus would say it's more important for him to leave. Jesus. I mean, Jesus. I would think about him being here with us. All the, Jesus, Jesus, I'm talking about the things that we could do if Jesus was here. And Jesus said, it's more advantageous for me, for you, that I leave so that the, another one will come. The Holy Spirit will come. And the Holy Spirit will empower you and give you strength and provide for you everything that you need. And the full gospel says, the full gospel recognizes the reality of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I think that's what Paul was speaking to these disciples about and what he would continue to teach in that two-year period as he talked about the Lordship of Christ, as he talked about the Spirit of God, and as he talked about all these other doctrines, somehow they would be able to come around and see what the good news of Christ really was about. It was much more than just a baptism of repentance. It was a story of faith and a story of lordship and a story of power that the Holy Spirit of God gave. It was a wonderful story that Paul proclaimed, a wonderful truth. And my friends, I pray that we always proclaim that kind of truth as well because that is the truth that people need to still hear today. There are people, for example, that I think are in that same line of John, John's disciples. Some of them are trying to do well. They're trying to do good. They've tried to repent. They're walking right by us. People every day, they're struggling with things in our workplace, in our school life, and maybe even in our church life. And they're trying to do so many things on their own. They've tried to turn on their own. And yet, we have the message of hope. The message that we can share with them. Hey, you know what? You can't do this on your own. You can't do this on your own. You have to rest on Christ. Trust on Him. Have your faith in Him. Hey, you know what? Every day, God has called you to submit yourself to His Lordship. Every day... He wants to direct you. Oh, by the way, do you know how liberating that is? Do you know how liberating it is that I'm not the one calling the shots, but that He is in my life? Freedom, peace I have through that. And that you can share with somebody else, hey, you know what? That lordship thing and you living it out, you ain't even got to do that on your own because the Holy Spirit of God set up residence in you. And he's the one giving you what you need and the blessing for your life. Do you see how that's a message of hope? And I'm telling you, there are too many people out there trying to do things on their own, make themselves good. But the full gospel, the full gospel, the complete gospel, liberates them and brings them to eternal life, brings them to salvation that they could never imagine brings them to a place of hope and joy and peace. May we be those messengers who embrace the full gospel in our lives and declare it to all those we come in contact with every day. Let's pray together. Father.
We again praise you for this night. And Lord, we praise you that many of us in this place have experienced the complete gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God, tonight we do rest upon you. You are our foundation. You are our cornerstone. And God, tonight, I do pray that we continue to recognize your lordship over everything. Father, if there is something that we're continuing to hold back, Lord, I pray that tonight we would just surrender it to you. And God, I pray that we would never forget the resource of the Holy Spirit that resides within. God, challenge us tonight. Help us in this moment of reflection to seek you and, Father, to obey you. God, whether it's in our pew or here at this altar, may we simply bow our hearts and our lives to you. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?